Um, did you, did you have a uh, a reason for picking these three? Because we're going to talk about back. we're going to talk about the three poems you you texted um, me. So, so yeah, these the to give the background, I guess uh, these are the three poems after the episode where we talked uh, extensively, I guess, about the seventh page of uh, Auden's book, The Dyer's Hand. Right. Um, these are three poems that I sent to you, I texted you that night, because um, you had talked about, like, you wanted to read Auden because of that or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, these are these are three poems that come to mind. They're not necessarily the most, not, like, the most famous. I think maybe In Memory of W.B. Yeats is, is up there. Um, maybe, like, September 1939 is, is, is as famous or more famous. Um yeah, these are three poems that come to mind. Uh, they were, I, I realized after the fact, they're all three, and this, this goes into a good introduction, or a, an introduction of, of, of Auden. Um, they're three poems that I studied in a class, I forget the exact name of the class, but it was like the classical foundations of lyrical poetry or something. It was basically just this professor in the, who taught classics, his excuse to teach a class that was like half like Latin poetry and Greek poetry and half like English poetry from the 19th, 18th and 19th century. Cause he likes both of those things. So it was his excuse to like talk about, you know, be like, here's, you know, some classical poem that, you know, somebody, here's a classical ode. And then we would read, uh, Kate's or however you say Keats. People say Keats, but that doesn't make sense to me. Um, we'd read, you know, Kate's odes afterwards. Um, and so, yeah, Auden came up a lot in that class because Auden is a poet. He's a, he's a poet poet. He, um, is very comfortable with, um, with the forms of the traditions, with the classical modes, the classical styles. Um, I think of him a lot in, in juxtaposition to somebody like C.S. Eliot, who was like, always uh very uncomfortable with the fact that anybody wrote poetry before him um he had this very uh uh this this huge friction with the, the tradition um with, the, with the, the the poetic tradition that he was a part of whereas Auden had a much more untroubled um yeah he had an untroubled uh relationship to the tradition and an untroubled relationship to poetics I know that we read um, the Yeats poem in memory of W.B. Yeats for like a Lamentations or Consolations. Yeah. And then, so Musée de Beaux-Arts is an ecrastic poem. So that's like poetic description, uh, often like poetic description of other art forms. And that... Or, um, yeah, sorry, what? No, I was just going to say translated the title is Museum of Fine Arts. For that poem, yeah, <laughs> I had to look that up. Because that 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 Google is in, I guess, is in the Museum of Arts landscape with the fall of Icarus. So three yeah. three examples um, of of different kinds of poetry you're saying that are sort of emblematic right. of how he wrote. Yeah, which the fact that they are fall in so comfortably into one of the, you know, what was it, eight or nine units in my classical traditions of English poetry or whatever class, um, just go to show how, yeah, he, 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 um, 
often fit his poetry into some form. He, he I mean, he, he would go back to not just these kind of like vague topics, um, or vague types of poetry, um, but that you see a lot of like old fashioned, um, kind of old fashioned verse. Um, he, he also is, you know, uh, free with like blank verse sometimes. Um, he wasn't completely, a, you know, um, just like a stayed traditionalist or something. Um, he would he he would sometimes bring back like older traditions of like alliterative poetry or um, yeah, just just like old older older like old English types of poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's a very interesting poet for that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting that he he's like a generation after Eliot, and he's just like so much has such a less troubled relationship with, with the tradition than that. I mean, that whole, like, Elliot. Is that, is that personality? Just, like, is that more personality than anything? I also, I mean, if you read, yeah, I, I think some of it's just, like, personality. Some of it um, probably, Elliot was an incredibly arrogant person. <laughs> so, of course, that's going to make you, like, less comfortable with... Uh, I mean, again, less comfortable with the fact that anybody wrote poetry before him. Mm-hmm. Um, Eliot was a very ideologically committed poet um, right. and, and critic. Um, he had very specific ideological, yeah, like very stupid ideological <laughs> boundaries to his his likes and dislikes. He thought, I, I think, I think he said Pericles was his favorite Shakespeare Shakespeare play, which is just like stupid. <laughs> it's like you just you just like you're only fooling yourself at that point. Um, you're only just wasting your own time if you're arguing for the aesthetic greatness of Pericles, um, Shakespeare canon. I wanted to ask you something. A play that is it? I wanted to register with anybody else. I wanted to ask you something related to this. Uh, general question about being a poet that I thought of. Um, tell me if it's bunk or if you think it, there's something to it. Do you think writers are born uh, prone to being a certain type of writer, for example, a poet or a, a theater, um, a playwright or a novelist or something? Or do you think that's born? a silly distinction? I mean, obviously, um, you have to fall in love with whatever you do, born. right? Yeah, there are. I mean, there are plenty of... There are, there are some writers who could do both get you a man who can do both. Um, I think of Chekhov as like one of the great examples, maybe my personal favorite example of somebody who could write a play and could write a short story. Right. Um, both just as devastating as each other. Um, he's a rare example, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. Um, it's probably a dumb question if you think a lot of, of it know, has to do like, with overall. disposition. I mean, it would have to. I would have to like. It would have to be like a poet by poet, I right? Guess, or writer by writer. I would have to. Um, I mean, there's some. There, there's certainly some like, uh, you know, clay that could be molded into different forms, like um, Shakespeare. Who knows what he could have written if he was writing. I mean, he, he spent the first few years of his career writing English history plays, but who knows? I mean, it, 30 years later, if that type of play was out of style, who knows what he would have, you know, been spending his time with. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, like, so and think like, about... Like a clay that could be molded or, like, suggestibility, where, like, you write, you know, a, a few decent things, and then 
um, kind of just the act of writing that and getting some feedback and, you know, having finished that, you kind of get better at it. I think, um, I think like how the Beatles started as a pop band and then mm-hmm. got more and more interesting as they did more work. I hate to say this because I don't have any right to speak about poetry generally, you know what I mean? But it seems like poetry would be harder to force unless your talent lent itself to that, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, there are levels of talent, like you said, there are people who can do everything. You know, there's like Michelangelo writers like Shakespeare who could have done anything. But um, it seems like poetry, like reading Auden, it just seems he, somehow his voice lends itself to, to the poems more than, you know... I mean, naturally speaking, I don't think I could do it. I'd, I'd have to learn. So I, I, I'm I'm split on that. I think as like a fact of of reality, as just like a fact of human life right now, that like poetry is like a hard thing to write. Mm. Um, but I think I mean I I think in a way poetry is way more natural um, means of communication than mm-hmm. uh, prose than just like. Uh, the mm-hmm. built up mannerisms of, you know, a text conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we maybe have, I, I think it might be more natural, but, you know, uh, we, 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 we perhaps have gone far from nature, mm-hmm. um, further and further from some kind of organic communication whereby the natural organic way of talking, um, feels artificial and feels weird. Um, that's a good point. So yeah, that, I guess that's my, my, my response is that, yeah, it's true, but uh, it doesn't have to be true. I think poets are working on a primeval level, um, even when they're, you know, uh, highly mm-hmm. elusive poets like, like, like Eliot or something. Or I mean, if you don't know who W.B. Yeats is, in memory of W.B. Yeats is like a, a highly elusive poem. Mm-hmm. Um so yeah, or would feel more elusive than it is. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, there's a thought in my head I'm going to try to get out. One of the things that I think about art is typically you can just tell. You don't have to know much about anything, really. You can look at a painting and say, that's a very well-done painting, you know. And you can look at a painting and say, that's not very well done, you know. So I guess as a writer, as someone who does stuff creatively... I can look at certain things that I'm able to do and say, like, like I guess what I'm saying is the rules for writing a, a novel are easier to, to learn or easier to uh, mimic or, or um, yeah. to get good at than a well, poem. I think, I think get it, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think part of that is just we spend more time with novels and we spend more time with prose right. writing and prose thinking. That's um, true. If I were to immerse myself. Kind of what I was getting at okay yeah, yeah that's true if you, if you just like are reading poetry all the time speaking mm-hmm. from personal experience if you're just reading poetry all the time like a, like a bunch of poetry classes you start to think more freely in poetry yeah it's definitely a, a deficit that i have but i started i started reading these first three so let's go one by one do you want to start with yeah. we had two known golden hours yes sir um, we two had no golden hours. Do you um, want to read it? I don't know. What do you think? Like it, it, is, it is... I don't think we can read it, no. I'll read it. Okay, go ahead. Target. No, I'll read it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I could do it Do it service, but... Um, we two had known golden hours when body and soul were in tune. I danced with our true love by the light of a full moon. 
and sat with the wise and good as dishes grew, as, sorry, as tongues grew witty and gay over some noble, noble dish out of Escoffier, had felt the intrusive glory which tears reserve apart and would in the old grand manner have sung from a resonant heart, but pawed at and gossiped over by the promiscuous crowd, concocted by editors into spells to befuddle the crowd. All words like peace and love, all sane affirmative speech, had been soiled, profaned, debased, to a horrid mechanical screech. No civil style survived that pandemonium, but the rye of the sotto voce, ironic and monochrome. And where should we find shelter for joy or mere content when little was left standing but the suburb of dissent? Yeah, so that a little bit the do, do you but, consider uh, that do you consider yeah, that vague? Kind of, or does that have a specific no, meaning I, to I you? Mean, okay. From your class uh, or understanding about it. Well, I, I think I think I think it kinda um yeah, yeah. Uh what what, what yeah, what, what questions do you have having having read that? Um I well, guess. Okay, so it sounds kind of wistful for something foregone does that mm-hmm. does that sound accurate and um i i guess i got the sense that he was referring to uh like kind of what you were saying actually about the loss of nature and romance and communication maybe um mm-hmm. and re- regretting that and how it's mechanical now and sort of uh it has a purpose maybe from newspapers i'm not sure when he was writing it yeah exactly but uh, yeah i'm trying to remember exactly when this came out um I can look that up. I think it was it was in the thirties, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah. Sorry, continue. Yeah, no. Um, I'll look that up if I can. And um. Uh, but you know what I like about these three poems too is there's something that survives from what is unfortunate, you know, that's being discussed. I guess through poetry or through the the soul of the of the writer, you know, you feel really connected to the person who's writing these poems because he's basically he's saying yeah. he's saying yes, this is sad, but it will survive because of my ability to, I guess, create art. Ooh. Well, yeah, there we're we're getting a little bit more ahead of ourselves into in memory of W. B. Yeats, I guess. Um, that second stanza in W. B. Yeats. Um. Yeah, I feel like here, there's, this is, I mean, you might not be able to place it. I can't exactly place it uh, 100% historically. I think this was like late 1930s. Um, there's a little bit of a shadow of like World War II hanging over it. Um, a little bit more specifically, just like as, I know he, he, he was, even if you don't know anything about Auden, you can say he's probably a somewhat established writer. Um, who is already kind of finding finding you know tedious the the expectations of of editors and not not just expectations but um, yeah the kind of world that's been constructed around literature um, that that uh, one stands but pawed at and gossiped over by the promiscuous crowd concocted by editors into spells to befuddle the crowd um, that repeat of crowd. Um, and those those hyphenated pawed at and gossiped over feel like very like 1930ism, um, and it, it is kind of like a more mechanical speech as opposed to 
the old grand manner and the intrusive glories of the first few stanzas, that kind of flow from the first few stanzas, um, that kind of, uh, yeah, yeah, more natural and, and more, more, uh, entrancing kind of, uh, versification. Um, here we get the promiscuous crowd and spells to befuddle the crowd. Um, and yeah, again, caught at and gossip over. Um, and so, yeah, I, I feel like even if you don't know exactly who Auden was, even, um, I mean, for one thing, if you look up Escoffia, I think that was a recipe book from the 30s. Uh, so, I, yeah, <laughs> there's that one thing that could give you a hint. Um, but yeah, even even if not, yeah, it's pretty easy to, to settle where he probably is, what, what he's probably thinking, where he's probably at. And yeah, there's there's again talking about the the versification, the the verse, the flow of the first few stanzas. Um, this is what I was talking about when I said that he's like a poetry poet. <laughs> he writes poetry. He's a poet who writes poetry, as opposed to like Eliot, who's a poetry a poet who um, is not exactly is not necessarily concerned with writing verse. Um, so yeah, uh, not not to necessarily say that. Um, this is better than the wasteland or in conversation. I mean, it's just like a different thing than the wasteland, uh, where, um, I remember reading Yates, uh, wrote an essay about like how, um, just like the, or, or where he talks about how just like the, the, the trance that like verse puts you, puts you in that metered verse. We two had known golden hours when body and soul were in tune. had danced with our true loves by the light of a full moon. What that's doing, what that's like doing to your mind is different than if he said in prose, I used to have a lot of fun with my friends. <laughs> we went to Oxford and we're gay or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's like a totally different uh, way of, yeah, just, just the mere fact that it's written in meter. Um, I think Ivor Winter would talk about like, yeah, it kind of puts your brain into a trance and, and Yeats, I mean, Yeats had theosophical, uh, positions that I would not necessarily even contend with one way or the other. But yeah, he talked about writing verse would sometimes put him into a trance and he would like, uh, have very distinct memories of things that never happened, but were like put into his mind by writing them. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily a universal, but definitely the, the, the mere act of reading that kind of uh, puts your brain into a different, a different pacing, a, a, a different non, not, not, not exactly literal, not exactly super conscious uh, state, or there's some, something, something deeply in, unconscious happening when you're reading those kind of lines. Yeah. Um, that is what I mean by poetry poet uh as opposed to an elliot or a pound or um, like you know uh it reminds me of how when you watch a movie if the movie's abstract you know we kind of talked about this related to mm-hmm. uh certain movies and how that takes you to a different place than you know something that's shot scene by scene and on a like a hitchcock level purpose to get you somewhere in the story versus the subconscious like yeah. what is life you know uh, questions that yeah. come from watching movies like uh, Tree of Life. What was that movie with 
Or even, or even not like not. It can't necessarily, I think, even be paraphrased in some conscious sentence. You know, mm-hmm. um, like tell me the the the. Yeah, tell me the overriding question of Tree of Life, and you've like you you can't do just like like summarize it into one sentence. Right, it's kind of like a deeper feel um, that is yeah untranslatable. Like Clarence Brooks talked about, you can't. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, he said a her- It's like a That's heresy. True. He called it a heresy of um, paraphrase. Um, hmm. if you're paraphrasing, he was talking more specifically about like the symbols of poetry, but I think just like the act of writing of, 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 of the po- poetic statement itself. Um, if you're, if you're paraphrasing it, you're doing, you're, I mean, sometimes you're doing something that's fine and good, um, but you're just, you can't really translate a poem into English. You can't translate a poem into prose. Then you're just writing something else, which is yeah, that's a good point. It's like it's not well, a and, poem. It, and <laughs> I guess something that's beyond the prose literal reality um, poetry. I, and if you think of the power of really good poems, like Hamlet or yeah. something, they relate to everybody in different poem ways. Poem unlimited. You couldn't, yeah, you can't paraphrase it. You can, you can define like who the protagonist is, but. Um, it means something different yeah, to everybody. Yeah, you can't paraphrase that, that. That is actually something that came to mind while I was saying that. You can't, like, tell me what the, what the meaning, what's the, what's the theme of Hamlet? <laughs> like, you can't even. Yeah, like, you make it, you make it cheap when you do that. It's not worthy of it, you know? And it, and like I said, everybody, yeah. everybody involved in reading the, a, a good poem, the power of it, I guess, is, uh, is more dispersed than like, like writing it out, like as an essay where it's explained, right. you know, like. Yeah, you could have written a column for the Daily Mail about how it used to be nicer to write yeah. poetry before you got discovered. We used to have mailboxes painted red, and now we have these ugly mailboxes. <laughs> I don't know, like something that, yeah, you could rail about how things have changed in the newspaper, but this is, yeah, this is a more yeah. universal approach, you know, it, that lives on. Um, and I like the descent, you know, the fact that descent is so, uh, a way of is a refuge. You might say. It's a mouse. <laughs> it survives, you might say. Um, to, to spoil the next poem. But I, but I like how... I, I was saying how Descent is kind of the refuge he's left with, which is so funny, because I think everybody oh, feels that way to a certain degree about a lot of things, you know, where it's like you personally mm-hmm. have, as as an individual, I mean anybody, has um, some kind of... Uh, uh, commitment to the truth as they see it you know and you're like ah this bullshit going on i'm gonna be you know there's um pleasure in being a dissenter i guess is what i'm saying anti-contemporariness to a lot of autumn yeah um i mean just by the mere act of being a poet in the night i mean he lived until like 1975 or something yeah, and think um, about the change he saw. You know, the ch- the amount of change. I mean, he lived through World War One and two. <laughs> right. That's uh, yeah, that's, that's bananas. Um, and he saw the death of poetry. So that's another. <laughs> <laughs> that that is a good point. The writers who were poets in the '30s, you know, and had were kind of a big deal. If they lived on, that would have been a weird thing to witness. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, the death sad. of the poet is kept from the poems, but the death of poetry was kept from the poet also. <laughs> the death of poetry was kept from WBA. Um gratefully, because he was a mad person, so he could have gotten pretty upset about that, I think. <laughs> that would make a good, um, 
uh, thesis or something. <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I have a kind of a, a lot of our friends talk about like how, how school should be like, they shouldn't be teaching reading crap. They shouldn't be reading like contemporary literature. They should only be reading the greats and they, you know, um, they should be reading the brothers Karamazov in seventh grade or whatever. I actually have the opposite opinion. I think that there's no way to teach English as, you know, you're going to teach it in a, in a high school where you have to get through the kind of mechanical meaning of the English language. Certainly now where literary ability, like, like just the ability to read the literary sense is, uh, so starving. Um, speaking as somebody who has, you know, had to talk to 17 year olds and 16 year olds. Um, <laughs> Did that depress you? Starving for starved for literature, like for the literary sensibility. Um, I don't want them reading Hamlet in six, in 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 twelfth grade. Even um, I would rather them be reading shitty literature, like or at least like mechanical, more mechanical literature. Like it's, it's great to read Lord of the Flies or something, some like book that where like his only themes. <laughs> it's, 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 there's nothing like poetical about it. It's just. Here are the themes. Um, but yeah, what? I actually think that like we should only they should only be teaching the, that kind of uh, yeah monochromatic literature, um, that screeching literature that that, that um, but yeah, what? like like maybe not necessarily contemporary literature because there's some great contemporary literature. Um, but I mean just yeah, like Lord of the Flies. I'm looking at a copy of Lord of the Flies, <laughs> uh, like that kind of. Well, I mean, why are you? What what what, um, what what's the uh, what's the advantage? Do you mean that they they won't hate it? Is it like we've been talking well, they're not, about? They're not ruining Hamlet. They're not because I had books. I had like Crime and Punishment, which I had read, but like it ruined it to be sitting mm. under fluorescent lights at nine fifteen talking about. What's Dostoevsky trying to do here? You know, it's like, what is, what is, is Raskolnikov? Like, is he, is he, you know, insane? It's like, what, what are we doing? This is, this is making me hate this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, for one thing, uh, right. I, I think that like, you know, that like lower level functional literature is like a great thing to be teaching them because they need to learn how to read sentences. Yeah. Um, and for another thing, it's, it's, it's like it can't be ruined by reading, talking about it under fluorescent lights at 9.15 in the morning. But so you uh, said shitty, I, I but you're talking, a lot of people have, when, when you say shitty, you're talking comparatively. You're not saying give them bad things to read. Oh, yeah, compared to Hamlet. Give them competent stuff. Okay, yeah, shitty. I got yeah. you. <laughs> Competently written kind of like straight. I didn't know what you meant, okay. Service. Yeah, no, I, that makes yeah, sense based on I mean. based on what we've talked about before. I, you know, I, I one of my favorite memories of English is when we would read plays, and like we read, um, uh, uh, the Doll's House, for example, or we read Hamlet, and we we didn't. Uh, I don't remember. Doll's House is a good example of like a play you can read in school. Okay, well, but but what I'm saying is we didn't la- belabor the meaning or anything. We we had parts assigned to people and we read them out loud and i remember that very fondly and that kind of interested yeah. me in, in well, reading. then you're just getting the getting the play thankfully yeah 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 but i hear what you're saying um okay do you want to read i can't pronounce it you say say the say the, say the museum of fine arts title musee Musee de beaux-arts de beaux-arts okay you want to read that one you did good last time yeah 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay. Uh, I had to get it. Get it. I had to step on my papers. <clears throat> okay. So yeah, this is Musée de Beaux Arts from 1938. Um, I'll just start. About suffering, they were never wrong. The old masters, how well how well they understood its human position. How it takes place while someone else is eating or opening a window or just walking dully along. How, when the aged are reverently, passionately waiting for their miraculous birth, there always must be children who did not specially want it to happen, mm-hmm. skating on a pond at the edge of the wood. They never forgot that even the dreadful martyrdom must run its course, anyhow, in a corner, some untidy spot, where the dogs go on with their doggy life. And a torturer's horse scratches its innocence behind on a tree. In Bruegel's Icarus, for instance, how everything turns away quite leisurely from the disaster. The plowman may have heard the splash, the forsaken cry, but for him it was not an important failure. The sun shone as it had to, but the sun shone as it had to on the white lakes disappearing into the green water, and the expensive, delicate ship that must have seen something amazing, a boy falling out of the sky, had somewhere to get to, and sailed calmly on. Okay. Um, so, yeah, that poem, have you seen uh, Landscape with the Fall of Icarus? Did you look it up? Uh, yeah, it's right here in front of me. Okay. Beautiful. So, yeah, there's, like, a lot of other stuff happening, and I think if you didn't know, if you hadn't read the title, you might miss you might not like look it's like a whale where's waldo almost where you're Mm, like where are the legs the white legs and the green water because like there's just like a lot of other stuff happening you just think it's like some slice of life uh coastal landscape thing right um there's just like a lot of other stuff happening yeah where where is it i don't Uh, even see the i don't see the white it's like i'm I'm, I'm I'm getting it up to it's like the bottom right. Okay. Um, I remember when we read this in class, the professor like brought up a image and had it like circled for our purposes. Um, if I get it, I'll be able to. The plowman. So is it a man? The plowman? A guy? Or is it? So yeah, it's it's like between the ship. Yeah, I, I think I see him. And he's out. Yeah. He's out looking for the what fell in the water, I guess. Is is it an animal? The fall of Icarus? No. no. The guy. That's Icarus flying too close to the sun and then the Oh, he's the guy thing. in the water? This is actually Yeah, he's the guy in the water. Okay. <laughs> that leg. Okay, I figured he was going to be in the sky. Okay, all right. Um, I got you. I got you. I mean, that's a statement, too. That's that's, 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 that's part of it, too. He's not, like, you know, elegantly falling through the sky. Yeah, this isn't an obvious illustration. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. That's really subtle. Exactly. Beautiful. Um, And, yeah, that's that's the whole whole point of Auden's, what what Auden's saying, Um, which is, yeah... uh, I got you I now. Think, the le- the white legs disappearing. I got you now. I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah, there's there's a lot of resonance. <laughs> speaking of Stephen Daedalus. Um, speaking uh, of Daedalus and his 
It's interesting that the poem focuses in on a truth that you're aware of, but you don't necessarily define to yourself, you know, and then you read the poem and it just comes at you and you're like, yeah. oh, that's always been there as a blazing, obvious thing, you know, but um, mm -hmm. especially talking about the dog, you know, the doggy life. I love the words he uses, uh, the dolly yeah. walking people. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, that's such, it's um, unexpected. The dogs go on with their doggy life. I've, I've quoted that way more than I, <laughs> than I can even keep track of. Um, and that's such a that's such a confident phrase. Like I feel like um, any less confident poet would uh, have to come up with some some more like elegant. What there'd be like some elegant variation to it. But the dogs go on with their doggy life is like a fully explanatory <laughs> and, and resonant sounding and. Um, yeah, it, it totally explains what what we're talking about here. And when you say um, when he says the dreadful, very imagistic. When he says the dreadful martyrdom, yeah, dreadful martyrdom. And it's reminding me of yeah. well, it just it's a perfect way to say the way people personally suffer. You know, where everybody else doesn't necessarily even get it, even if they know the facts of the, of what's going on. You know what I mean? The the little kid or somebody yeah, can't be understood. Brought, yeah, who brought to you know Golgotha? Is that the hill? Uh, yeah, Golgotha. Oh, I extended myself too far. <laughs> um, Stop. There's actually another poem that we read in class about the exact same painting. Do you want me to read you this Carlos Williams Carlos Landscape with the Fall of Icarus? Yeah, what, um, what book do you have? Fun. Is it like a textbook? Oh, this is just like poems that he printed out for us. Oh, gotcha. Go ahead. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, William Carlos Williams, Landscape with the Fall of Icarus, um, which is just the, the whole title of, of, of the... And, and, and Williams is writing 25 years later. He very much knew that the Outen poem had happened. <clears throat> okay. According to Bruegel, when Icarus fell, it was spring. A farmer was plowing his field, the whole pageantry. Of the year was awake, tingling, near the edge of the sea, concerned with itself. Sweating in the sun that melted the wings wax, unsignificantly off the coast, there was a splash quite unnoticed. This was Icarus drowning. That, uh, so that's, that's the <laughs> William Carlos Williams companion piece. The, you know what I'm going to uh, say? I'm going to say the fact that I, I've seen this painting now, and obviously this is a great poem by Auden. Um, it's weird when someone's writing or, do, or you know, doing art about other art and you're looking at the art they're talking about. That's, mm. that's, a, that's a weird thing. It doesn't usually happen, you know, where you're actually observing the thing you're reading about. Yeah. The experience of looking at that yeah, painting like We can't is look so... at the Grecian urn that Keats was talking about or the shield of Achilles, which a couple right. of different people have written about this painting is yeah, this definitely is available attractive this painting is something else i will tell you i i i haven't <laughs> seen a painting that strong in a long time i can see why oh, it inspired yeah. poetry the old masters um yeah that's beautiful okay so um and i think it's huge um in aspect it's, i hope so uh, i hope it is see what the dimensions are yeah, I love yeah, everything about that. Thirty painting. inches by forty-five inches, or something. Yeah, it's, it's big. Maybe I mean it's not like uh, Rothko or uh, Pollock, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a, 
imagine pretty pretty wide and pretty tall po- or canvas. Um. All right, let's do in memory of WB Yates. Yeah. Um. How do you want to do this? Do you want to like alternate? Sure, I can read. Or not stanzas. This you, you want? Yeah, let's do that. I'll read the first and third parts. How about that? Okay. Since I haven't read yet. All right. That'll be even. In memory of W.B. Yeats. Now, when you're reading poetry, do you say part one? Is that common? I don't want to make a faux pas here. <laughs> do I actually I say, say that? One, okay. I just say okay. one. Okay. In memory of W.B. Yeats. One. He disappeared in the dead of winter. The brooks were frozen. The airports almost deserted, and snow disfigured the public statues. The mercury sank in the mu- in the mouth of the dying day. What instruments we have agree, the day of his death was a dark, cold day. Far from his illness, the wolves ran on through the evergreen forests. The peasant river was untempted by the fashionable quays, by mourning tongues. The death of the poet was kept from his poems. But for him, it was his last afternoon as himself, an afternoon of nurses and rumors. The provinces of his body revolted. The squares of his mind were empty. Silence invaded the suburbs. The current of his feeling failed. He became his admirers. Now he is scattered among a hundred cities and wholly given over to unfamiliar affections to find his happiness in another kind of wood and be punished under a foreign code of conscience. The words of a dead man are modified in the guts of the living. But in the importance and noise of tomorrow, when the brookers are roaring like beasts on the floor of the Boris, and the poor have the sufferings to which they are fairly accustomed, and each in the cell of himself is almost convinced of his freedom, a few thousand will think of this day, as one thinks of a day when one did something slightly unusual. What instruments we have agree, the day of his death was a dark, cold day. Okay. Uh, two. You were silly like us. Your gift survived it all. The parish of rich women, physical decay, yourself. <laughs> mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Now Ireland has her madness and her weather still. Her poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the sally of its saying where executives would never want to tamper. It flows south from ranches of isolation and the busy grief, raw towns that we believe and die in. It survives, a way of happening, a mouse. Three. Earth, receive an honored guest. William Yeats is laid to rest. Let the Irish vessel lie, emptied of its poetry. In the nightmare of the dark, all the dogs of Europe bark, and the living nations wait, each sequestered in its hate. Intellectual disgrace stares from every human face, and the seas of pity lie, locked and frozen in each eye. Fellow poet, oh, follow poet, follow right to the bottom of the night. With your unconstraining voice, still persuade us to rejoice. With the farming of a verse, make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess and a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. So, I like actually the way we read it in order. Uh, This one seems to have components of the other two poems, you know. And um, 
this is pro- yeah. to me to me the lo- you know the most involved and probably the one that I need to reread the most. Um, well, I just mean that in terms of comprehending it because of three parts and everything. But uh, yeah, so the the echoes I see yeah. are. So I was just going to say the echoes I see are when he talks about the suburbs of his of what's going on with uh, Yates, the word suburbs, and and he talks about the squares of his mind and provinces of his body, and then um, the idea that. Uh, you know, the something bad happened, but but something good can come out of it, or at least we can preserve something good out of it, and um, something survives. Yeah, and the then way it's happening now. And then the Musée des Beaux Arts. <laughs> I can't say that. Um, I guess the fact that it's sort of uh, alluding to something occurring with everything else still going on around us. You know, it's kind of resonant of that too. So mm. yeah, anyway. Uh, far from his illness, the wolves ran on to the evergreen forest. Um, yeah. Although, yeah, that's uh, so that's uh, yeah, it's, it's a similar idea, but kind of like a a different setting. I think of that idea, um, a kind of uh, yeah, uh, obviously, yeah, um, a more naturalistic setting. It's kind of um, the peasant river was untempted by the fashionable quays. Um, compared to, yeah, like children playing ball while they're supposed to be watching somebody get, you know, hung or whatever. Um, um, you want to give some, yeah, here, what's the relationship between the poets? Is, I guess he admired Yeats, right? I didn't mean to interrupt you. But, yeah, Yeats okay. was, uh, earlier, gen- I mean, Yeats is writing poetry. Yeats is publishing poetry before Auden was born. Mm-hmm. Um, Auden was born in like, 1903 or something. 1907. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, and yeah, Yates had written a couple of books by then. Um, Yates, I think, of, I, I, I think I've mentioned Yates already, um, quoted yep. him, not quoted, but alluded to him. Uh, Yates, I definitely think of in like a similar vein to Auden, um, in, in, in the way that I was talking about, that they were both still concerned, even in the 20th century, with writing verse, with writing poetry poems, with writing... I mean, Yeats was what I was quoting, what I was saying, um, you know, that the, the, the verse puts our minds into a trance that is inaccessible through any other means, any other means of writing, at least. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I, so yeah, I think, I think Autumn was... Um, Auden was definitely inspired by Yeats and kind of like, you know, tradition with Yeats. And um, I think it went both ways. If I remember correctly, Yeats was a fan of Auden, you know, early-ish Auden. Um, because, I mean, Musée of Beaux-Arts. Musée de Beaux-Arts um, came out the year before Yeats died. I think we too had known Golden Hours was in the late 1930s. Um, so there wasn't much time for Yeats to be reading Auden's poems. Um, but yeah, yeah, there was kind of a, uh, family tradition. There were like distant cousins or something in, in, in the poetry world. Maybe not even distant cousins. There are cousins in the poetry world. Um, Auden was British. Uh, Yeats was Irish. So, um, there isn't a, like, uh, necessarily like a national bond but there is kind of like an organic bond between the two 
and how they wrote poetry. Um, actually, so in the third stanza, um, getting to Auden's, this kind of extends from Auden's feelings about Yeats on a personal level. Um, there are actually three stanzas that he originally published and then took out hmm. um, about Yeats's political or not necessarily the Yeats's political leaning, but a lot about Yeats's political leaning. Um, so here, in like the original, starting from I guess it would be line forty-six. Um, so the second stanza to the fourth stanza of part three would eventually be taken out, which were time that is intolerant of the brave and innocent and indifferent in a week to a beautiful physique, worships language and forgives everyone by whom it lives, pardons cowardice, conceit, lays its honors at their feet. Time that with this strange excuse pardoned Kipling in his views and will pardon Paul Claudel, pardons him for writing well. So Paul Claudel was a French, like, extreme right-wing poet and dramatist and stuff. Kipling was a super racist, uh, like, yeah. He did Gunga uh, Din. Right, I know that. And, yeah. Um, so here, without talking about how, uh, yeah, Yeats spent some time as, like, a fascist in the 1920s um, and had some... Uh, yeah, politically, I mean, yeah, he's talking about, in relation to Kipling and Claudel, I think I'm pretty safe in, in, in giving this a political reading. Um, where Auden hated fascism, <laughs> uh, but is, you know, uh, and, and Auden's writing from a perspective in 1939, where you kind of look at where, where it went, um, where fascism was going, um, and already had gone in Spain and, uh, was trying to go and, uh, other, other nations of Europe and, uh, almost, yeah, political defense of, of, of his friends. Um, yeah, I, I think he just found them weak and unpoetical. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, that does explain a little bit, I think, how he felt about Yeats. So did Ireland, did Ireland like Yeats, or did, was Ireland generally uh, antagonistic towards his poetry? Was his politics anti-nationalism, or, or...? Well, he was a national... I mean, he was a, he was a virulent nationalist. Okay. Um, and he would eventually be elected to the Irish Senate. Um, he wasn't necessarily... I mean, there were people in Ireland who loved him. You talk about the parish of rich the parish of rich women, he had these patrons, these, like, millionaire patrons. Um, because, yeah, even then, you couldn't, like, live on poetry salary. Um, <laughs> yeah, there were there were people who loved him, but, I mean, he was a poet. I don't know if <laughs> people were... Well, no, but I, I guess uh, I'm asking, what does he, he mean, Matt Ireland? Matt, Matt Ireland hurt, hurt you into poetry, not Ireland has her madness. What does that mean? Oh, I mean, that's just... I mean, we talk about like Joyce all the time, and how how uh, Joyce, how Ireland, and all the various um, neuroses and okay. uh, prejudices and smallnesses of spirit and meanness of spirit uh, inspired Joyce's Dublin writing. Right, it's kind of similar with Yeats. Okay, um, 
And, and I mean, Yeats was occasionally a much more political writer than Joyce. He wrote a poem called East of 1916, um, Romantic England is Dead, uh, Ireland, or Romantic Ireland is Dead. So it's a whole different uh, change, changed utterly. Um, it's this great poem on the occasion of the failed uh, Okay, so Auden's politics were more conservative too. Is that is that I didn't I didn't expect that. Is that what you're saying? Uh, or you just don't? No, know? I, okay. I'm just saying that Auden didn't have a perspective necessarily that would have laughed at. It didn't have the political open mindedness. Didn't have the political perspective to say to laugh at that line once he had written it and be like, oh, Mad uh, Ireland. Also, mad, insane, psychopathic Britain. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, it's like, it reminds me of a line, it reminds me of a line Orson Welles had on a talk show. I guess it was Dick Cabot. And he said something which you could say about any anything, I guess. He said, you can say anything about America, and it's true. You know, I mean, Mad Ireland, yeah. okay, but Green Ireland. There's 400 million Americans. <laughs> Happy Ireland. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I see what the you're saying. The song Ireland also had, you know, a huge effect on Joyce and Yates. Um, yeah. You're talking about nations. I mean, that, that's something. That's something. Uh, Wild said, "There's no such thing as Japan. <laughs> there's no Jap. There's no such thing as Japanese. Like, what are you? What are you saying, Japanese? Um, and like in a literal legal sense, he's wrong. But he's saying like, uh, like any, and you can't describe a nation. If right. It's like more than. I mean, you, you can't. You can barely describe a person. Uh, the better you know them, the less you're willing. I'm willing to like describe character traits to myself. Like if I say, you know, I'm tall. <laughs> I remember all the people that are taller than me and how I feel short at the end of the day or whatever. Um, you know? um, but the context, like you said, yeah, if it's related, it's, similar to how uh, Joyce's relationship was, then that would make more sense. I'm not familiar with Yates, so. I guess, like you well, said. Well, I mean, he, he was just a few years older, I think, than Joyce. Joyce was born in, like, 1880. I think Yates was born just a couple years earlier. Yeah, Yates was something. born in 65. And you're right, he died in 1939. Oh, sure. Um, yep. Yeah. They were in a very similar... And, and Yates, uh, he, lived, he was born in a place called Sligo, but he spent a lot of time in Dublin created a Dublin theater. Actually, there's that, there's a moment in Portrait of the Artist of Young Man where Jurors is remember, Stephen Daedalus <laughs> is remembering going to see uh, the opening production of a Yates play from like 
two or something. So yeah, they were sharing a similar Dublin, although Joyce was a bit younger because I think Joyce would have been like, or fuck it, Dayless would have been like nineteen or twenty at that time. Right? Um, Yates was, you know, running running the Dublin theater scene at that point, the National Theater, or whatever they call it. Anyway, anywho, um, yeah. Any other questions about that? Poem. I think a lot of it kind of speaks for itself. Um, yeah, it's a really modified in the depths of the living. It's a really good poet poem about death. I think you know. I mean, it, I, I like the line where it was it was his last afternoon as himself, and then he talks about how he's going to have to find his own happiness now in a different way. And it, yeah, I, it's a really interesting way to talk about yeah. death. He becomes his admirers, he becomes our memory of him, there's, there's no other thing there. Um, an afternoon of nurses and rumors. Yeah. yeah. Anybody who's had I to mean, be around I, death I can relate like to that. he's not like a celebrity, but I think there's, I mean, he was a Nobel Prize winner. Um, but yeah, there still would have been like some amount of interest in whether or not he was dead. Right. Or dying or his health. I don't know exactly. I don't remember that part of the Elman biography, but um, yeah, it still could have been something that other, certainly other poets would have been concerned about or waiting for rumors of on the radio. I don't think people were all, you know, <laughs> going to the going to the the city center to hear the radio played out whether or not he was alive. Um, um, if they're like me, they probably already thought he was dead. Every time a celebrity dies, I'm always like, oh, I thought they were dead. Yeah. <laughs> Unless um, they're like I'm kidding. 30 or something. Yeah. <laughs> like Amy Winehouse, I did not think. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean. But nowadays, all these, all these billionaire, or millionaire celebrities who can live to be 100, and it's like, oh, shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Brooks is still alive. Literally, I think Olivia de Havilland, who was in Gone with the Wind, died last year. So <laughs> I was like, oh, my God. Anyway. Speaking of 1939, yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, bringing it all together. Okay.